another episode of Mormon Discussion. I'm your host, Bill Real. You can email me at realmormon at gmail.com. That's R-E-E-L-M-O-R-M-O-N, the at sign, gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at LDS Leadership Principles. You can also locate this podcast on iTunes or at mormondiscussion.podbean.com. So today, I would like to talk about General Conference, and specifically one talk, and what I thought was an incredible observation, in what was my opinion to me, the best talk of General Conference. It was Elder Holland's talk. But before we get to Elder Holland's, I want to set it up. And so I've had this uh, portion of another talk used before in one of my podcasts, but I hope even if you listen to that episode, you'll listen to this one again. This is Dale Sturm from January 31st, 2012, where he talks about faith being a decision. So let's go to him now, and this will set up Elder Holland's talk. In Luke chapter 5, we find Peter being asked to do something when he was not in the mood. And it came to pass that as the people pressed upon Jesus to hear the word of God, he stood by the lake of Gennesaret, which is another name for the Sea of Galilee, and saw two ships standing by the lake. But the fishermen were gone out of them and were washing their nets. Peter, as you know, was a fisherman, and it seems that he worked with his brother, Andrew, and his partners, James and John. It was a morning after a long night of fishing on the Sea of Galilee, made longer by the fact that they had caught nothing. The Sea of Galilee had, and still has now, some 25 native species of fish. But the two major species, the two from which fishermen made their living then and now, are a kind of tilapia and lake sardines. I'm in favor of the tilapia. I'm somewhat opposed to the sardines. (laughs) The sardines come out in the open at night, and so they're generally caught at night in large encircling nets, which in those days were cast by hand onto the surface of the water, allowed to sink to the bottom, pulled down by weights sewn into their perimeters, and then hauled back to the boat by hand with a rope. The rope was attached to strings, which in turn were tied to the edges of the net, so that when pulled, the net would close up like a bag. It required strength and stamina to throw the nets out, haul them back in, open them, empty them, and throw them out again, over and over. Luke chapter 5 begins as Peter and the others are doing the tedious but necessary daily work of washing their nets after a night of fishing, presumably for sardines. The nets needed to be cleansed of debris and any accumulated plant material, then stretched out to dry after every fishing session. If the nets were not washed and dried, they would rot and break. So, like it or not, it had to be done every time even on mornings after long nights when nothing had been caught. The Savior was there on the lakeshore that morning, and a crowd had gathered, hoping to hear him teach. To make it easier for everyone to hear, the Savior asked Peter if he could step into his boat and push out a little. The crowd would stay on the shore, and the Savior would speak to them while sitting in the boat. The arrangement would create something like a natural amphitheater. Now, we should note that as far as we can tell, this is only the second time that Peter has met Jesus. 
Andrew had introduced him once before, but there's no evidence that Peter had yet determined to follow him. All the same, the Lord politely asked this favor of Peter. While he was working on his nets, his frustratingly empty boat was just sitting there, reminding him of his wasted night. So he consented, and Jesus did as he had proposed. Interestingly, Luke tells us absolutely nothing about the sermon the Lord taught to the crowd that morning. Not one word. Apparently, all of this has just been set up for what Luke really wants to tell us. For Luke, the real story is what is about to happen. Now, try to imagine this with me. The sermon is over. The boat is brought back the few yards to the shore. Peter drops his now washed and dried and folded nets into the empty boat. He sighs that tired sigh that means the work is finally done. Maybe he even turns his thoughts to breakfast and home and rest. It is in this moment that the Lord Jesus Christ looks Peter in his weary face and says, Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a draught. In other words, take those nets you just cleaned and put away and sail back out onto that sea you just spent all night on and use your tired, aching muscles to throw the nets out again and see if we can't catch some of those fish that are nowhere to be found today. Can you imagine the look on Peter's face in this moment? Peter seems to begin his response to the Lord intent on saying no, but something happens halfway through. Master, we've toiled all the night and have taken nothing. I imagine a long pause here as the Lord listens to Peter while calmly, firmly, lovingly, expectantly gazing at him. Peter changes course. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. And when they had this done... They enclosed a great multitude of fishes, and their net brake. Where there had been nothing, there was now so much that their nets could not handle the load. And they beckoned under their partners, which were, their, which were in the other ship, that they should come and help them. And they came and filled both the ships, so that they began to sink. Their forlornly empty boats were now filled beyond their capacity to remain afloat. Now that's a lot of sardines. Amidst the excitement and the yelling and the laughter and the splashing, Peter stops and falls to his knees right in the fish. Depart from me, he says to Jesus, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. So Brother Sturm here shares a beautiful story out of the scriptures of the second time that Peter encountered the Savior, out fishing, catching nothing, being asked to take, in a sense, a leap of faith so that he might, from this point forward, determine himself to follow the Christ. Now, turning to Elder Holland's talk from General Conference, we find out what happens three years later when they find themselves in this same situation. This is taken from Elder Jeffrey R. Holland, member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, in his talk from the October 2012 General Conference, The First Great Commandment. There is almost no group in history for whom I have more sympathy 
than I have for the eleven remaining apostles immediately following the death of the Savior of the world. I think we sometimes forget just how inexperienced they still were and how totally dependent upon Jesus they had of necessity been. Of them, he had said, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me? But of course, to them, he hadn't been with them nearly long enough. Three years isn't long to call an entire quorum of twelve apostles from a handful of new converts, purge from them the error of old ways, teach them the wonders of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then leave them to carry on the work until they too were killed. Quite a staggering prospect for a group of newly ordained elders. Especially the part about being left alone. Repeatedly, Jesus had tried to tell them he was not going to remain physically present with them. But they either could not or would not comprehend such a wrenching thought. Mark writes, He taught his disciples and said unto them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. But they understood not the saying, and were afraid to ask him. Then, after such a short time to learn and even less time to prepare, the unthinkable happened. The unbelievable was true. Their Lord and Master, their Counselor and King, was crucified. His mortal ministry was over. And the struggling little church he had established seemed doomed to scorn and destined for extinction. His apostles did witness him in his resurrected state, but that only added to their bewilderment, as they surely must have wondered, what do we do now? They turned for an answer to Peter, the senior apostle. Here I ask your indulgence as I take some non-scriptural liberty in my portrayal of this exchange. In effect, Peter said to his associates, Brethren, it's been a glorious three years. None of us could have imagined such a few short months ago that the miracles we've seen and the divinity we have enjoyed, we've talked with, We've prayed with, we've labored with the very Son of God Himself. We have walked with Him and wept with Him. And on that night of the horrible ending, no one wept more bitterly than I. But that's over. He's finished His work and He's risen from the tomb. He's worked out His salvation and ours. So, you ask... What do we do now? I don't know more to tell you than to return to your former life rejoicing. I intend to go a-fishing. 
And at least six of the ten other remaining apostles said in agreement, We also go with thee. John, who was one of them, writes, They went forth and entered into a ship immediately. But alas, the fishing wasn't very good. Their first night back on the lake, they caught nothing, not a single fish. With the first rays of dawn, they disappointedly turned toward the shore and saw in the distance a figure who called out to them, Children, have you caught anything? Glumly, these apostles turned again fishermen gave the answer no fisherman wants to give. We have caught nothing, they muttered. And to add insult to injury, they were being called children. (laughs) Cast the net on the right side of the ship, and you shall find, the stranger calls out. And with those simple words, Recognition begins to flood over them. Just three years earlier, these very men had been fishing on this very sea. On that occasion, too, they had toiled all the night and had taken nothing, the scripture says. But a fellow Galilean on the shore that day had called out to them, to let down their nets. And they drew a great multitude of fishes, enough that their nets broke, the catch filling two boats so heavily they had begun to sink. Now it was happening again. These children, as they were rightly called, eagerly lowered their net. And they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. John said the obvious. It is the Lord. And over the edge of the boat, the irrepressible Peter leaped. After a joyful reunion with the resurrected Jesus, Peter had an exchange with the Savior that I consider the crucial turning point of the apostolic ministry generally and certainly for Peter personally. Moving this great rock of a man to a majestic life of devoted service and leadership. Looking at their battered little boats, their frayed nets, and a stunning pile of 153 fish, they counted them, Jesus said to his senior apostle, Peter, do you love me more than you love all this? Peter said, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. The Savior responds, 
to that reply, but continues to look into the eyes of his disciple and says again, Peter, do you love me? Undoubtedly confused a bit by the repetition of the question, the great fisherman answers a second time. Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. The Savior again gives a brief response, but with relentless scrutiny, he asks for the third time, Peter, do you love me? And by now, Peter surely must be feeling uncomfortable. Perhaps there is in his heart the memory of only a few days earlier when he had been asked another question three times and he had answered equally emphatically, but in the negative. Or perhaps he began to wonder if he misunderstood the master teacher's question. Or perhaps he was searching his heart, seeking honest confirmation of the answer he had given so readily, almost automatically. Whatever his feelings, Peter said for the third time, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. To which Jesus responded, and here again I acknowledge my non-scriptural elaboration. Jesus responded perhaps saying something like, Then Peter, why are you here? Why are we back on this same shore, by these same nets, having this same conversation. Wasn't it obvious then, and isn't it obvious now, that if I want fish, I can get fish? <laughs> what I need, Peter, are disciples. And I need them forever. I need someone to feed my sheep and save my lambs. I need someone to preach my gospel and defend my faith. I need someone who loves me, truly, truly loves me, and loves what our Father in heaven has commissioned me to do. Ours is not a feeble message. It is not a fleeting task. It is not hapless. It is not hopeless. It is not to be consigned to the ash heap of history. It is the work of Almighty God, and it is to change the world. So, Peter, for the second and presumably the last time, I am asking you to leave all this 
and to go and teach and testify. You labor and serve loyally until the day in which they will do to you exactly what they did to me. Then turning to all the apostles, he might well have said something like, Were you as foolhardy as the scribes and the Pharisees, as as Herod and Pilate were? Did you, like they, think that this work could be killed simply by killing me? Did, Did you, like they, think the cross and the nails and the tomb were the end of it all? And each could blissfully go back to being whatever you were before. Children, did not my life and my love touch your hearts more deeply than this? Elder Holland's observation is absolutely gorgeous. So we have, when we read the scriptures and we're, and we're going along reading them, Sometimes we come across places where we begin to kind of make our own assumptions. And so when Peter is asked by the Savior three times, Peter, do you love me? And he, and Peter answers in the affirmative, thou knowest that I love thee, Lord. And then the Savior tells him to feed his sheep, feed his lambs, when he gives those answers those three times. Many times when I've gone through the scriptures and looked at that, my simple conclusion was that Peter was trying to make up for the three times... The Savior was giving Peter an opportunity to make up for the three times that he had denied him. But when Elder Holland gave this talk, something clicked, and I got it. If you can think about Peter and the Apostles having spent three years of the Savior and then going back out onto the same lake to go fishing again, having returned to their old lives, and here's the Savior who comes to them after they've caught nothing once again just like they caught nothing the first time. And he looks at Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? And and the point being is, if you love me, knock this off. What are you doing back here? Go feed my sheep. You need to be about building the kingdom. Not just saying, well, the Savior was here, he's gone. Sorry about your luck, I guess that's the end of that, so let's just go back to our old lives. No. Once one has been converted to the gospel of Jesus Christ, one is under a covenant to mourn with those that mourn, to comfort those that stand in need of comfort, but most importantly to be a testimony of the Savior at all times and in all places and in all things. Now, going back to Elder Holland, this is the finishing half of his talk and him asking us as members of the church to, if we want to tell the Savior that we love him, then we ought to look at our loyalty to him. My beloved brothers and sisters, I'm not certain just what our experience will be on Judgment Day. But I will be very surprised if at some point in that conversation... God does not ask us exactly what Christ asked Peter. Did you love me? I think he will want to know 
if in our very mortal, very inadequate and sometimes childish grasp of things, did we at least understand one commandment? The first and greatest commandment of them all. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind. And if at such a moment we can stammer out, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee, then he may remind us that the crowning characteristic of love is always loyalty. If you love me, keep my commandments, Jesus said. So we have neighbors to bless, children to protect, the poor to lift up, and the truth to defend. We have wrongs to make right, truths to share and good to do. In short, we have a life of devoted discipleship to give in demonstrating our love of the Lord. We can't quit and we can't go back. After an encounter with the living son of the living God, nothing is ever again to be as it was before. The crucifixion, atonement, and resurrection of Jesus Christ mark the beginning of a Christian life, not the end of it. It was this truth, this reality, that allowed a handful of Galilean fishermen turned again apostles who without a single synagogue or sword went on to shape the history of the world in which we now live. I testify from the bottom of my heart with the intensity of my soul to all that can hear my voice that those apostolic keys have been restored to the earth and they are found in the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. To those who have not yet joined in this great final cause of Christ with us, we say, please come. To those who were once with us but have retreated, preferring to pick and choose a few cultural hors d'oeuvres from the smorgasbord of the restoration and leave the rest of the feast. I say that I fear you face a lot of long nights and empty nets. The call is to come, to stay true, to love God and lend a hand. I include in that call to fixed faithfulness every returned missionary who ever stood in a baptismal font and with arm to the square said, having been commissioned of Jesus Christ. That commission was to have changed your convert forever, but it was surely supposed to have changed you forever as well. To the youth of the church rising up to missions and temples and marriage, 
we say love God and remain clean from the blood and sins of this generation. You have a monumental work to do, underscored by that marvelous announcement by President Monson yesterday morning. Your Father in Heaven expects your loyalty and your love at every stage of your life. To all within the sound of my voice in this conference broadcast, the voice of Christ comes ringing down through the halls of time, asking each one of us, while there is time, do you love me? And for every one of us, I answer with my honor and my soul, yea, Lord, we do love thee. And having set our hand to the plow, we will never look back until this work is finished and love of God and neighbor rules the world. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This episode of Mormon Discussion is pointed towards two groups. The first group has a motivation crisis. You've quit trying. I don't know if it's because you don't feel that you'll ever make it. You feel the standard is too high. It's something you cannot achieve. And so you've given up. You don't see how in the world you can make it back to Heavenly Father. And so you've quit trying. I don't know how you got there. I don't know if that's the case. Maybe it's... Maybe it's the gospel just isn't as important to you as it should be. But one way or another, you're struggling. You don't see it. You think you're doing fine, that you can just coast through life, and that everything will just work out in the end, that God will beat you with a few stripes, or you'll suffer for your own sins, as it says in D&C 19. But you are missing the boat. You can't do that. The Lord loves you. He's reaching out to you. His arms of mercy are extended towards you. But you got to get up. you got to move forward. you got to start trying again. And as Alma 32 says, it starts with a desire. The other group, you have a faith crisis. You've quit trying too because your testimony is so fragile. You've placed it in things that you have called doctrine which are not. You placed it in problems that you found in church history or things you discovered on the internet. Your testimony has crumbled and you don't know how to rebuild it and it hurts. Having spent time in both groups, may I share a thought with you? One, when it comes to motivation crisis, perfection is not the standard. Perfection is the goal. This life is about becoming. This life is about desire and about being willing. It's about pressing forward with steadfastness, with an eye single to the glory of God. 
It's about loving Christ enough to keep the commandments and loving Him enough that when we fall short, we get up, we repent, and we try again. In regards to faith crisis, if we think about doubting Thomas, who thrust his hands into the Savior's side and into the prints of the nails in his hands and his feet, the Savior said, Thou hast seen and believed, but blessed are they who have not seen and yet believe. You're searching for a testimony. You keep looking for it in the wrong places. You've looked on the internet. You've looked in critical material. Some things don't add up. I get that. But every point in life, they're not going to add up. There's always going to be things that make more sense if if given a simpler explanation. But faith is those things that are true that cannot be seen. May I share a story with you? At one time when I was struggling, I went to a member of the church and had a conversation with them and asked them why the church was ignoring what I perceived to be elephants in the room. Here was his answer. Quote, There are not problems as you characterize them, and the elephants in the room are not the baby elephants you keep hoping are going to trumpet an answer. In the very back corner is a humongous, massive bull elephant who is sitting on his side, resting from all the bellowing he has been doing, hoping to get the attention over the mass of baby elephants making all the racket. He is obscured from your view because all you keep seeing are the baby elephants covering him from view. There is a work underfoot that you do not grasp yet. It seems to you to be a work to hide and protect the church. Completely incorrect. We can flush these thoughts out further if we need to, but when you think of Bruce R. McConkie's take on the ten virgins and that they represent the members and that half of them will fall away, what do you think is going to separate the saints from one another? We do love each other, and as a group we are very tolerant when appropriate. But what is going to drive a wedge between the members to push them apart? Faith is the big elephant lying on its side resting. The 50% that fall away are those who do not realize that theology is built upon a requirement of faith. Without it, none can please God. One can never overcome the theological demands of faith by an appeal to empirical proof. They are at odds. The one will destroy the other. Proof will only leave you weak and unable to stand when stand you must. The one leads to eternal life. The other leaves one unable to call upon God when the time is ripe for destruction. The work that is underfoot is the sifting of the wheat from the tares. In the coming days... I have no clue how long, but soon enough, I am sure, the truths of the history of the church will save no lives. The only thing that will is then those that live, breathe, feel in their hearts and souls the faith that can stand this moment, the beginning onslaught against the church. It is the same ideological battle that pulled a third of heaven to follow Satan. It will escalate from here to becoming a physical battle, and the world will be arrayed against us. It will take powerful faith, perhaps Enochian faith to turn the tides against those who would destroy the members of the church. You are only in the beginning stages of the battle of the war of words and the ideals and you are already falling prey to the efforts. What will you do when destruction is between you and the powers of heaven to forestall? Faith so few understand it is a genuine power. Sometimes I think that members are hell-bent on avoiding, denying, and fleeing away from opportunities to exercise faith the power that holds the worlds in their orbits and enables the creative efforts. We lip service it and then ignore it constantly. This day is a blessing to you. 
You are being tossed and torn and beaten and abused in the crucible of faith. The anxiety you feel is because you are slowly feeling the heat of the flames that will prepare some and destroy others. You acknowledge the need for faith, but it is not impressed upon your soul the power of what faith really is. Again, I ask, what did you think it would look like when you were in the middle of the sifting? It looks like what you are seeing. It is painful. Until the faith provides the healing, and there is no faith in questioning the motives of the church, they know exactly what is happening, and they are stemming it as best they can within the boundaries of agency and teaching correct principle. I'll see where this takes you. Unquote. This life is difficult. Sometimes we are left on the very precipice of having to use our agency and having to exercise faith and picking what fork, what road in the fork we're going to go down. The one of unbelief, because things just don't add up here or there, or the one of faith and belief, because you've had spiritual experiences that testify to the truthfulness of this gospel. If you've had those, rely on them. If you haven't, seek them out. If you feel you haven't received them because you have because you put the effort in, but for some reason this God who you doubt now has not answered you, then I say start praying again. Start reading again. The Lord has not abandoned you. Seek out Him. Seek out the Holy Ghost. And when you have the Spirit within you, then all truth will be known unto you. For by the power of the Holy Ghost... You may know the truth of all things. I do not know how the Lord will answer you, but I know how he has answered me. In my darkest hour, as I sought the Lord and his spirit, wonderful, incredible spiritual experiences occurred to me that brought me back to where I need to be. May I bear my testimony in this conclusion that this is the Lord's work and that we ought to have the Holy Ghost otherwise we will be at that day when we need faith lacking it. May I conclude by going to Elder Holland in another talk of his. This is from the April 2011 conference called An Enzyme to the Nations. Obviously, as the path of discipleship ascends, that trail gets ever more narrow until we come to the knee-buckling pinnacle of the sermon of which Elder Christofferson just spoke, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which in heaven is perfect. What was gentle in the lowlands of initial loyalty becomes deeply strenuous and very demanding at the summit of true discipleship. This has been another episode of Mormon Discussion. I'm your host, Bill Real. You can email me with any thoughts for future shows at realmormon at gmail.com. That's R-E-E-L-M-O-R-M-O-N at gmail.com. You can find this podcast on iTunes. You can also find it at mormondiscussion.podbean.com. And you can get us on Facebook at LDS Leadership Principles. May the Lord bless you. May you be loyal to Him and to his gospel. May you, if you have returned to that boat to catch fish, may you understand that we can never go back, 
that our Father in Heaven expects us to press forward. May the Lord warm your shoulders. God bless you and good night. Say what?